everybody welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast covering every horror movie franchise one movie in one episode at a time however this being october we are taking a break from covering franchises and we are doing what i would call the staff picks of uh the show right now where we're just kind of doing whatever the hell we feel like for a month and having a good time with it I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling tonight? I'm feeling so good. The yeah. last week and a half has been Friday the 13th week for me. And, you know, as as such a huge, being such a huge fan of the series, like I've just had a smile on my face mm-hmm. the whole time, the, whole, the entire time. And it's funny that you call it like staff picks month. I've been, when I'm talking to my wife and stuff about this month, what we're doing, I usually call it fuck it month. Yeah, it's the the month where just like you know what we're gonna do whatever the hell we want because it's October and we can. So yeah, I'm excited to it. It's definitely interesting. You know, we look at the numbers. Like obviously, the um, Nightmare on Elm Street series brings in the big big numbers. Um, But you know, hey, every now and then you're gonna take a step back and do something that you well, Jesus, I love the Elm Street series. So what am I talking about? Still better. Let's put it this way: it's still better than doing Lost Boys, The Tribe. Okay, so. All right. I have no idea where I'm going with this. So we're going to go ahead and introduce our guest. Um, So it is Wednesday, October 14th. We are one day past the premiere of the new Friday the 13th fan film, Never Hike in the Snow. Um, And we are joined by none other than writer, director, and Jason himself, Vincent DeSanti. Vincent, how are we? I'm doing well. How are you gentlemen doing? Doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty good. We're all kind of hanging in there by the skin right? of our teeth right now. The motto now. Of, of 2020, hanging in there. Hanging in by, by a thread. thread. <laughs> Jinx. Yeah, I, gotta, I can't talk now. I'm interview over. We can't talk. Someone's going <laughs> to buy a Coke. Hey, it's, it's short, just like Never Hike in the Snow. There Bye, everybody. Go. Bye. All right. We'll be back <laughs> next week with Hellfest. And that's it. Wrap. After the crowdfunding campaign. You should do What's that. funny is after, after I watched Never Hike in the Snow, after I watched it uh, this afternoon, my daughter goes, so can we watch the actual movie? And I was oh. like, no, that is the movie. And she was so excited that she was just wanting more and more. So, yeah, this is cool. So what you're saying is your daughter, you, Vincent disappointed your daughter, basically. He broke no, no, heart. not in that sense. It, the it, the in, the, in the sense that it, it left her just like instantly hooked. Wanting cool. more. Great. Good. So, and that's what it was supposed to do. <laughs> excellent. So what has the past 24 hours been like? What's it like now that it is up? people can watch because it was announced what september of 2019 was that the official we announced it um yeah september 13th 2019 Mm -hmm. uh we launched our indiegogo campaign on the same day Mm -hmm. and uh announced that we were doing a mini series that we we looked at never hike alone 2 as a a story it was a full feature film and said that 
there was no way in heck that we could do a feature film for a budget of $50,000. So let's break them out into pieces since it seems like $50,000 was our cap. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first test piece with this was like never hiking the snow, giving fans this opportunity to put Jason in the snow. We live near big bear. We get a lot of snow up there. It seemed like a no brainer, do this short, help it set up the help set up the mini series that we want to do and just keep rolling. Um, and we were able to get to the part of shooting the movie and, and getting funded and having a really successful campaign. And then COVID kind of hit this year. Um, that slowed everything down in post-production. We actually had a death uh, of a crew family member oh, that so shut sorry. us down for a little while. So we kind of sat back and, you know, I hadn't even seen the. I didn't even watch the film for like three months. Um, mm-hmm. I want to say three or four months after we had wrapped in uh, early March, which was a week before everything shut down. So we were lucky to be able to complete our, our, um, our production. And so it was a, it was a long summer, you know, we were feeling for our crew member. Um, and when he came back, he was, uh, very motivated. Um, he had something to prove and he did an amazing job. He cut mm-hmm. the film, uh, our editor, Mike happy, mm-hmm. uh, who lost his father. And it, um, it was really humbling. And while we were watching the film, it kind of had that tone on it. And I think people could feel the tone of loss and something different in a Friday movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe a lot of people are processing that, um, processing the fact that we've changed it up from doing a short feature into episodics. So this should have felt like a pilot episode. This is episode one. Episode one is supposed to leave you like, I want to see what happens for the rest mm-hmm. of the season. And these next three entries are that we want to tell that story, but we're not a studio. We're guys working 40. Actually, we're working the film industry so let's let's not uh shortcut ourselves we work 60 hours a week mm-hmm. and then we do this on the weekend and we do this between breaks between shows trying to scramble enough money just so we can do this so it takes a while for us to create this type of, of content how much you just said like we wrapped this up like a week before everything got shut down in california and i know things are slowly opening back up in terms Mm -hmm. of the industry, but there's been like a number of precautions that are put in place. Um, When you were frantically putting, like finishing that last like week or so, how much did the fact that like this could shut down at any time weigh on the back of your mind and how you adjusted your schedules? It really, it really wasn't there yet. Mm -hmm. Um, It was kind of going on in the background and we had our weekends planned and, um, we, we were kind of just knocking it out week by week. And then it was really when we got back that it really started to get serious, that cases started to spike. And I had actually flown to Portland to go help out the Jason Rising project, which mm-hmm. is another fan film that I'm, I'm co-producing and I co-wrote on. Um, and while I was there is when the lockdown uh, procedures came in and it really seemed to, it went from, okay, is this another like swine flu or is this real? Mm-hmm. And that's when it became real. And, you know, I flew home. It was very desolate and weird. Um, no one was on the plane. No one was at LAX. I came home and yeah, it was from then it was just kind of sitting back and, and, you know, working through post-production working through some of the stuff we went through and then everything that led up to the release yesterday, it was just, you know, we never stopped working. So today was kind of the first day that I didn't have to work on the movie. It was out. There's no, there's no more changes I can make. There's no more adjustments we have to do. You know, we spent all weekend catching stuff by uploading stuff to YouTube mm-hmm. and watching it in different formats, uh, trying different, you know, even though they say, oh, here's the YouTube safe one. Like we would put it up and we didn't like the look of it. And so mm-hmm. we worked on it. And, you know, my, you know, I had off to Rob, the, the colorist at uh, Laura Wood Pictures. Um, you know, he did, he worked all weekend to make sure that it looked good. And I think once we got through the premiere and it, it was, it could be available more than what looked like 720. Uh, and you can watch it in 4k now. Um, 
yeah, that that's a big hat to them. Laura Wood did a great job. Iceman, uh, the sound people did an amazing job uh, getting out that. Ryan Perez Dapple back with the score. Trevor uh, Vaughn back with music. So, you know, another soul appears in the movie uh, from the previous movie. And of mm-hmm. course, he did Cut Here, which is the new end song, uh, which we think is a perfect title for the end song. Cut the story here, the feeling of loss, all that stuff. So there's a lot of things that, you know, in a year time, we turn this around in a year, October 13th to October 13th from when we got funded to when we premiered. That's a pretty cool turnaround for a, a shop that mm-hmm. is only really made up of about three people full time. And, you know, we were able to shoot this thing in about six days. Oh, yeah. So it took six days to shoot, but like mm-hmm. a year to get everything just due to logistics and schedules. And <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it took about three months of pre-production, all that prosthetics and stuff that you saw mm-hmm. in the film the fake heads the all that stuff we built an exploding head mm-hmm. um you know that thing really explodes on screen along with like some of the cg stuff we put on top of it of course Cortland's makeup for when he's alive Cortland's makeup when he's dead mm-hmm. um a lot you know we put a lot of the budget into that because we wanted to show up and say like okay we showed you our storytelling t- chops with never hike alone you know what we can do there you know what the story is there let me show you the world that we're trying to bring these characters into mm-hmm. and let me show you some of the brutality that this J is capable of because he was he had his hands tied behind that his back in the previous film Mm -hmm. i couldn't kill the character because that wasn't the story that we were telling Mm -hmm. this is a story in which it really is kind of the original spirit of never hike alone which is these are the stories about people who go into the forest and never come Mm -hmm. back out and what's their tale and it allowed us to explore you know loss with like who are the characters that lose uh, these characters in the films like actually looking at a survivor i mean at a victim's Mm -hmm. um, surviving family member um, and then the other people along the way and, and who gets caught in the middle of like this weird uh, rivalry between Rick and Tommy that's lasted all these years because these two hate each other and have always hated each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, people processing the kind of like bold directions you guys took with this. Uh, halfway through watching it, I looked at my wife and I was just like, this is insane. Like I, I was watching the film and it resonated me with me in a way that like I just didn't expect like the the it's such an introspective take on a Friday the 13th film and I think that sets it apart so just dramatically from like from the rest of them in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways and you know as a fan of the series and as a creator I mean do you feel somewhat of a responsibility to give fans these very solid uh, stories that we've been missing for 11 years now Yeah, I mean, my whole aim with this is to kind of prove a point that I've always thought that Friday the 13th, as fun as the original movies are and how much they shaped my love for filmmaking, that there was always these deeper stories underneath that no one ever took seriously. We never took the franchise seriously. And as a fan, I think that's one thing we all share is we feel like we love these films, but the the studios never took them seriously and they never really gave them a chance. And if they actually dove into some of the storylines that they set up and actually took them seriously, these films could have a much different tone. They could be Halloween-esque in a sense that it's not all about the cheap boobs and gore, that there's something deep resonating here that people can really relate to. And I think that for anyone who's a parent, watching the scene where the son says, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to come back like every other day and, and blow a kiss. I called it the death kiss on, on set mm-hmm. because Cortland improvised that. And I was like, you just blew your mother a death kiss. That's awful. <laughs> like, great. Rip people's hearts out. That's what I want. And, and I kind of wanted that scene of like, we open up this film celebrating what we love about Friday the 13th, a brutal death. We see a character, some 
young nothing who's who's gone into the wrong place, gets shot up with an arrow, gets an accident in the mouth, gets a really cool, beautiful cinematic death. You know, we get lots of blood, lots of gore. That's what we wanted. We wanted blood in the snow, right? That's what we want, everybody. Mm-hmm. Now let's go meet his mom and feel bad <laughs> about it. And then see that this kid kind of accidentally stumbled into a world that he didn't know existed. And he didn't know what the parameters of it were. And he made the mistake of accidentally catching Jason on camera. And that was his only crime. And Jason is trying to protect this world. And we're showing a little bit in the introspectiveness of Jason of what he's trying to protect and where he calls home because he's got nothing else. All he has is his mother and that, that room. And in a sense that like when we showed Kyle have hallucinations at the end of never hike alone, and we'll continue to kind of play that theme up. The, the, the person who has an hallucination in this film is Jason. He has that moment where he has that connection with his mother, the curse and everything kind of of why he does this and why he continues to, to march this rampage uh, upon Crystal Lake and protect this territory and that he's protecting this, the last connection that he has with his mother and the privacy that he has because he knows that if this technology encroaches in and somehow someone proves that he can exist, that it's all going to come crumbling down and it's all going to be over. And you know, that, that kind of become it raises the stakes for Jason. So you see that he's fighting for something. You see that all these characters have their own initiatives and their own motivations, and they're all kind of working against each other. And it isn't until our hero characters all get on the same page that they're going to be able to really solve this crisis. That was one of my questions was Hmm. exactly how aware is Jason of the outside world? Cause it seems like in this one, he's a lot more aware. And I, that's like you had just said, trying to kind of protect his turf or kind of like go under the radar. Like, so how aware, like in the remake, you know, it seems like Jason is a weed farmer and there's kind of a, there's kind of a uh, unspoken agreement between him and the locals where they leave mm-hmm. him alone and he supplies him, them with some great kush, you know, I mean, fantastic. <laughs> Discount prices. <laughs> you know? um, but how yeah. aware is Jason of the outside world in the kind of uh, fictional world that never hike alone, never hike in the snow is set in? Okay, so this is my nerd is about to show because okay. technically the, the Jason you see on screen here has been to Manhattan. Okay. Um, my lore picks up it, it basically it treats it as the paramount eight are i are canon in some way shape or form those those events happen the manhattan incident happened in some mm-hmm. way shape or form in this in this creature's career in this creature's life and this is 30 years after that because it reflects my feeling about the franchise which is i felt like even as goofy as seven and eight got, I still feel like I was in the same world. It was the same Jason. It was the same story. And then it, Jason goes to hell. It took a very hard left turn. And I've been, I was like, wait, I thought we were going that way. How did we end up going this way? And Paramount kind of made their one-off movies each time. It never really tried to connect or explain anything. It just basically mm-hmm. gave you the cliff notes version of Friday the 13th and then played out a Jason story. And that's all that they were really um, kind of focusing on. And in the remake, they, they tried to kind of do the same thing where it was just a blanket retelling of the story and then putting in the kids in the setting. And I think that where fans were is that we were like, okay, you know, 30 years after you guys kind of like running gunned an entire franchise for eight films and just made it up as you went, maybe it was time to put a little bit more thought and care into these characters. And I, I think that that's where 2009 kind of missed its mark. It, it, it tried to, but it kind of was so, it didn't really... It didn't really pick a direction. It kind of wafted on on what it wanted to be, or it just didn't really find that right blend of herbs and spices to really kind of get the audience super excited about another one. And then it went into development hell, and then it went into a lawsuit. And here we are 12 years later without a film. 
Mm-hmm. I think with mm-hmm. us, it, it, for me, it was like, I wanted, I wonder what happened to that Jason that got washed down the drain. It didn't end up in Jason goes to hell. It didn't get turned into a slug that it came back and it realized that after all these years of being burned and blown up and shot and, you know, drowned and buried that maybe it's not a good idea to keep rushing out into town and murdering people that maybe I should go back to my part one, part two ways where I'm going to go back to hiding. You know, I'm going to go back to that shack life and I'm going to find a little room in Camp Crystal Lake, uncover my mother's head and just protect it the best I can. And slowly over time, kind of like heal, because I feel like he was probably really wounded at the end of part eight. And this Jason became a master of disguise in a way. That's why he kind of took on the moniker of Ghost Jason, not for the just the, you know, when the, when the fans named that for us, mm-hmm. it kind of really fit his personality and the fact that he's kind of a specter. He's this revenant that haunts the camp and he's physically there and tries his best to avoid people. But if someone crosses into his territory and someone uncovers his truth, he will enact and he will make them disappear and no one will ever find them again. Mm -hmm. And so he's been really good at this for 30 years. And that's where we're picking up in our story, especially in Never Hike Alone, um, where the difference is, is that at the end of that story, a character manages to get out and and blows the whole plan away. And that's Kyle McLeod. And that's that story. But prior to Kyle McLeod, there have been other people that have gone into this territory and not making it out. The first story we told in that world was Disappear music video that helped launch Never Hike in the Snow. And in that story, it was very simple. Kids go into Camp Crystal Lake because they think they can get free time at a beach that's, you know, unattended and drink beer and Jason kills them and their story is over. And in fact, those dead bodies are in the same cabin. Mm. Um, If you look close enough, there's one behind uh, Mark and then the other two are under the tarp in the bedroom. So, so we kind of carried over that they had the same dead bodies. So similar to part two where like um, Annie's body is Amy Steele's body is in the cabin with Jason's mother. If you look, you know, blink. Yeah. Adrian King's, it, you can see the, yeah. yeah, you see the thing and the other dead bodies too. There are mm-hmm. other people that he's piled up in there and that he's collecting the bodies. Yeah. And so with the Mark incident, it's really about another character that didn't make it out and then telling our audience and showing our audience of like, this is, this is what happens after a Friday, the 13th film, Mm -hmm. like after the credits roll, this is how it it takes place. And how do you, how does Rick explain this? And knowing that previously in part six, that Rick and Garris were really focused on hiding the town. He's been trying his best to hide that Camp Crystal Lake still exists. And the original never hike alone. It's no longer Camp Crystal Lake. It's just a, it's the Wessex County wildlife preserve. Mm Um, and that's what it's called in, in this film, too, is that they don't you don't they don't acknowledge that the camp is out there. But our character, Mark, who is a photographer who does scouting, who knows how to look at like location maps, uh, ended up discovering the camp on Google Maps and went out there to go check it out because he was curious and he wanted a cool subject to, to shoot, um, which is isn't unlike a lot of us who are photographers or filmmakers. That, that's how we do it. And that's exactly mm-hmm. how we found the camp. In fact, the photo that Mark uses in the film is the photo that I screen shotted four years ago when I found that camp and we started shooting. Mm-hmm. So we tied some of our own story into his story as well, which was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, that ultimately like these stories about the, the people that didn't get out and that's what we're, we're setting up that world. So you can understand what Tommy's dealing with, what Rick is dealing with. And then eventually in the next episode where we're going to see that we're going to answer that question of how did Tommy find Kyle in never hike alone? We're going to answer a lot of questions about where has Tommy been? What is he dealing with? What, how does the curse still affect him? And then how did he find Kyle? And then really build up towards in the first episode, a Jason versus Tommy fight. That's going to like kick off, 
the entire kind of carnage of mm -hmm. this entire series that then kicks off into the next episode, which becomes our body count film, and then into the final episode, which is our final standoff. Um, you know, the final survivors of the movie, whoever makes it through the next two episodes, they're going back to Camp Crystal Lake and they're going to take on Jason one last time and they're going to try and put him down once and for all. It sounds like in some ways, almost like the classic universal monster movies, very similar to like, um, you know, what Tom McLaughlin did in part six with that love of gothic horror where you have like your um, conclusion with the villagers storming the castle with pitchforks and um, torches ready to kind of burn the monster out. I don't know if there'll be that much of a village left. Right. <laughs> there'll definitely be a, a, a nice little grouping of characters that are going to stand out. And, you know, we've established most of them in this first movie. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, it's going to come down to how does Rick and Tom, does their relationship resolve? And some of the people that are caught in the middle, like this woman, Diana, who's going to actually play a very important role in the movie. She works at the hospital that Tommy works at. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, in the future episode, she's kind of stuck in Crystal Lake. Like, what am I doing here still? But if mm -hmm. I feel like her, her son's body still hasn't been found and she feels like she'd be leaving him behind. So by staying, she's somehow staying close to her son and something's drawing her in. Something is kind of like working on her now. Mm -hmm. And when she gets caught in the hospital between, you know, Tommy coming back at the end of one of the episodes and, you know, the police showing up and saying, we're looking for Tommy. She kind of starts, they, they start to play in question, like what happened to her son? And maybe Tommy had something to do with his disappearance. Mm -hmm. Why is he being arrested at the end of this episode? Um, ultimately it's for trespassing and there's nothing that they can really pin on him. So everybody who thinks like, how did Tommy become an EMT if he was in jail? It's like, yo, he got arrested for trespassing, not murdering yeah. people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. he's getting a fine. <laughs> like, yeah. And he'll pay it and life will go on. He's not going to yeah. lose his job over trespassing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think my favorite thing about Never Hike in the Snow is how different it feels. Like it, it feels like it's finally an entry. It's finally an entry that taps into something that we had. We haven't seen tapped into previously in the franchise or the, or the series, you know, like Jason mm -hmm. having that hallucination like caught me off guard because it's such a, you know, we, we said introspective at the beginning, but it's such an almost heartfelt moment between mm -hmm. Jason and his mom in a way that we haven't seen. I mean, they attempted to kind of get in his head in Freddy versus Jason, but like the scene where it happens in, in this film, like you, you can't help but kind of feel something for like the pain of Jason, you know, like, like I'm, I'm curious when writing it and coming up with that, like what your motivation for that scene is, because it comes off very different than anything we've seen in the past. So there's a couple of things at play there. And this is a scene that I've had in my head for a very long time. And I always ask, I, I ask, you know, I've been trying to ask as many people, you know, in the last day or so, like, is this a scene that you've also seen in some way, shape or form in your own mind about Jason? Like you could see this happening. Like, I feel like this is a shared memory we all have from a movie that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And those are the types of memories I'm trying to pull from, for my love of Friday the 13th to build these movies. The things that I think that we all share in common that we just don't know yet. Um, and I've seen a few ideas out there. And I'm like, yeah, that, I love that idea. That's actually the idea I have. And, and people will be surprised when certain ideas will pop up along the way. Um, but with that, with that scene, there's, there's a dual meaning to it. Um, there's the sweetness of it. There's the sweetness of like Jason feeling accepted by his mother and showing the world, you know, what their bond was. But the question is, is that really Pamela or is that this deeper, darker secret that the camp has, that this land has, that this curse has, that's a hold over Jason? This is the thing that's almost controlling him in a way, in a way that Freddie did in a way in, in Freddie versus Jason. But Freddie's 
um, intentions were overt and they were like right on top of the service. And we knew that he was manipulating him. And I think in a way I'm playing with the concept of this curse kind of manipulating Jason in a way that he's this harbinger of death, but he's been chosen. But if you look at where he came from and who he is and what he was as a child and what, who his mother was, I never considered them evil. They're victims. You know, they are the victims of circumstance and they were turned into, you know, the victimizers. They were the ones who took their revenge. There's the one who took revenge, like took that revenge. And the question around Crystal Lake is, does it have a supernatural presence like Derry Maine in the sense that when people are drawn to its beauty, that there's something that that it affects in them that that turns men against each other, that turns people against each other in a way that, that about greed and jealousy and lust and all these things, the, all these sins of mankind that that in some way, shape or form, this this land has supernaturally able to push people over the edge. And I don't know if it's necessarily going to be the mission of Never Hike Alone per, per se. Um, we're never going to address that really in this, but I think my brain for this in Friday the 13th expands out in many directions, both in the future and the past. Um, and I think as I tell this stories and if I have opportunities to tell more stories in the future, I'd love to explore the past of Crystal Lake and maybe play with those overtones. So when we see these things in Never Hike Alone, where characters are going to be seeing visions and stuff that we saw like in part five, and that's where this is drawn from is Friday the 13th part five, where uh, Tommy is having these hallucinations of Jason and how much of that is PTSD and how much of that is the curse. And that we really do play heavily on this concept that when you come into contact with Jason in some way, shape or form, you are cursed for the rest of your life and that is why tommy has been so drawn back to this camp um, and so drawn back to this town because he can't leave he feels like it's obligated to him to protect it and that's why he keeps coming into um this conflict with the police it's funny you say curse because when i think of the first friday the 13th movie you know i think of like curse is another word for trauma um and i look at pamela Voorhees, who what that movie is really about is about a uh single mother that never was able to kind of come to terms with the grief of losing her child. And you have like a single mom in the fifties when that would have been widely frowned upon. And you could kind of feel like how much she would be judged by the people of a small town, very close knit community, very insular community, like Crystal Lake appears to be very little help, nothing in social services that would be available. And on top of that, you know, having a child that is, has severe special needs, and having like no support network and then making your whole life around supporting that one person and then losing him and what that would do to somebody that didn't have any support network. And what I really like about uh, never hike in the snow is you, as you mentioned, like the dueling depictions of Jason and his mother as well with Mark and Diane and what you see at the core of it, yes, Jason is a murderous monster. And yes, Pamela Voorhees had some issues she needed to resolve i would recommend one or therapy. two one or two yeah but they are really about this family unit with is based very much on real love between a mother and a child um mm -hmm. how much more do you how much further down do you see exploring the kind of relationship with pamela or jason or even seeing where the mother's kind of paths intertwine with one another thematically they, it's gonna it's it's a it becomes a big theme of the show mm -hmm. um and it really kind of is the central focus about why Jason is here um, and will, you know, become a central plot point as the time goes on. I mean, we've been showing the head and we've been showing, you know, Jason's actions, acting his actions around the head to be very specific. Um, you know, anytime anybody comes around that thing, he gets very protective of it. So 
um, you know, without giving too much away, it's like that becomes the, that be kind of comes the, the football, I guess you could say of, of the film, which mm-hmm. is like this head that he's trying to protect and he doesn't want anyone else to come in contact with and, and protect his secret. Um, and, you know, the fact that he's been hidden and being able to, to stay out of Tommy's sight for all these years as, as hard as Tommy has tried to hunt him down and find him. Um, you know, when this kid comes out of the woods with not only, you know, his life intact, but a camera that has captured Jason on, you know, on screen, you know, now Tommy has a little bit more information that he hasn't had before. And so that becomes a really big plot point about how important Kyle's journey really is to this entire Mm -hmm. thing. It's, you know, it's funny you bring up the universal monster thing. I also kind of bring up star Wars in a way where, Mm -hmm. where Tommy is this Obi-Wan character who has, who's dealing with issues from the past. And along comes this young upstart who really doesn't know what he's getting himself into, but has the key to the whole thing. And only when they work together, uh, can they really solve these issues? And it really becomes a trifecta. You know, <laughs> our Carrie Fisher, Prince Leia is, is Anna, uh, you know, our Diane, our, our Diane Hill, who is the third conundrum, the mother who's lost her son. I mean, who else to join this, this trio of fighting than someone who depicts the entire theme of the franchise and everything you said before about Pamela, like you're singing the exact tune that I want to see Friday the 13th follow is not go down like the cliche thing of like, you know, oh, she was raped and he's a rape baby and all this stuff. It's like, you know, if you listen to Pan, um, to Betsy Palmer's interviews, she talks about how, you know, she received, she had the class ring as a prop that she had to wear in the film. Um, or at least Tasso was wearing it when he had his hairy hands on, on screen. <laughs> and that was the gift um, that her that her lover in, in high school gave her to a promise ring and they had sex and he got her pregnant and he denied it and left her with the baby. And I always, I always thought about that storyline about her traveling from town to town, trying to make ends work, getting kicked out of her family, getting, you know, kicked out of her family's house, getting, you know, being put on the road, working odd jobs and finally getting to crystal Lake and being welcomed in by, you know, probably I can see like in my head, the Christie's are like the really wealthy get out style parent, like, <laughs> like progressives who think they're doing good, but they're really kind of in it for themselves. And they welcome in this family and they're like, come on in, we'll take care of you. We're, you know, we're welcoming here. But the minute it comes time to take some responsibility for when their children, the kids that are, that are going to Harvard and Princeton and all these other great schools at the end of summer, when it's their responsibility for a child's death, now nobody's accountable. Oh, well, it's not our fault. Oh, mm-hmm. well, somebody else, you, he's your kid. You should have been, you know, type thing. And she feels betrayed. Like, fi- like I can imagine like that moment where she just snaps where she finally thought she found a home and she finally thought she found a place and people finally convinced her to let Jason go out and be on his own and be a part of this camp and be with other kids. Finally, I'm supported. And what do they do? They let her down. And then when it's time to pay the, pay the piper, everyone gets away scot-free and what happens to her? She gets kicked down the road again, not this time. And it's just, you can see where like that rage and that uh, vengeance would bubble up from Mm -hmm. and then you know in my head if you add this supernatural presence that then haunted her with the ghost of her child after his drowning that would drive her really insane and create a really cool horror movie i mean i see it like kind of as a babadook meets um you know good night mommy uh you know what i mean like kind of in a way where like pamela is seeing this child who's telling who's telling them all to kill her mommy you know kill them you know, and there's a story of like, who else did she kill along this line? There's other people to blame. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I think that you could like in the future of Friday the 13th, that's one of my dreams is to, to attack a Pamela movie and create this story about this powerful female, you know, superhero in the, in the horror world and give her the just due that she deserves. I mean, there's been 12 movies, only one about her. Right. Uh, 
And, you know, is they're going to build this franchise up once this friggin' lawsuit ends and there's lots of opportunities to, to do things. I think that they need to seriously look at giving Pamela some time on back on screen and telling her story because it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. How much does it bother you that like, you and others have put so much more thought into the backstory and the characters. And like you had said, you know, circling back to what you had said a while ago, like when it was in the hands of Paramount, it was like boobs and gore, you know? And it feels like you as a fan and as a creator, as someone that's creative, like have put way more effort into this than anyone Paramount did from 1982 to 89. Well, I mean, the focus of a studio is to make money. Right. And if a formula makes money, you repeat it and you keep feeding the cash cow and you keep feeding into your overhead and you keep making as much money as you can out of it. And you, mm-hmm. you try not to, you, you know, you don't, you know, you don't take a risk. That's not what the studio model is. The studio is not about taking a risk. It's about guarantees. And so mm-hmm. that's why you see when something becomes successful, you see a lot of copies of it because studios really don't like hedging their bets. They don't like taking a lot of big wild swings unless they're, you know, a smaller company that, that invests in independent films and can invest in a swath of, of independent films that come out mm-hmm. that year. And if one of them hits it, it pays their entire mm-hmm. payroll. But at the Paramount level and at the par- at, at those types of studios, they need to generate hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars, if not billions of dollars on, on these properties, right. you know, and you can adjust for, you know, rates over time. I mean, obviously that's what they're looking for now. Back then it was a hundred million. You, you, you're doing great. And I think, you know, Friday the 13th made 40 million, you know, in 1980, but that was yeah. a huge sum of money for them. Yeah. Off a million so, bucks, right? Like off of like a million yeah. bucks, they make it 40. That's a pretty big return on investment. It's a huge return on investment. And then you make another movie and you only raise the, you double the budget. It goes from 750,000 to 1.5 million. And you have, you know, you're basically jumping the shark by bringing back a character that was presumed to be dead. Mm-hmm. You don't bother explaining any of it. You don't say whether he survived or not. You know, it's, it's never really clear and ultimately started the greatest fracture of continuity and logic mm-hmm. in the history of, of all cinema is mm-hmm. the Friday the 13th franchise and its wonky explanations for how it can keep going other than Jason never dies. And it's, it's a cool concept that really in the 80s you get away with because that's how movies were back then. They were simplistic. They were single-minded. You know, they were party movies. It was a cheeseburger on a Friday night with your friends at a drive-in, having fun and going to the next thing. And then, you know, and then Scream came out and it dissected the slasher and it made us see it for everything that it is. And it made us, you know, we looked at it from a different angle and other, you know, zombie movies came through and ghost movies came through and, you know, the cycle of different movies came through and now slashers are coming back and the slasher boom came back with the remakes and some of the remakes fared well um, because they found something that connected with modern audiences and other films like Friday the 13th, even though they had big opening weekends sort of fell flat on their face because they didn't reinvent themselves in mm-hmm. any sort of way. And it left, you know, studios again going, wait, the formula didn't work, but we did the formula and we got a big opening weekend, but why did everyone run away the second weekend if we did what fans want? And ultimately they, they looked at found footage. They looked at 3d um, you know, they looked at a complete reboot Um and they went through all those different versions. They looked at a sequel to 2009. You know, I think there were about four or five versions that they looked at and, you know, ultimately could never decide on one. And the one that they did decide on at the end, they pulled the plug at the last second because Rings 2 didn't do well. Right. And, um, you know, and that that's really the thing that opened up the door for Never Hike Alone because we took their slot that year. We came out on Friday the 13th in 2017 and, you know, said, well, if you're not going to do it, we will. 
And where fan films have the advantage is the fact that we know what fans want. We know what fans want to see. We know, we're willing to take the risk because we're passionate about finding these answers. Mm-hmm. Everything in Never Hike Alone and Never Hike in the Snow and this entire miniseries are based on questions that I've had as a fan that I've want to see answered and it answered in an entertaining way. Mm-hmm. And in a way that makes me feel more respect for the storytelling of Jason and really saying like, okay, let's let's clean you up a little bit. Like let's, let's, let's redress you for the modern age and, and show, you know, the world your potential. And I think that if anything, I hope that our films at least show the potential of that. You know, once you do, once they do get studio funding again, once they are, once they do have those budgets to, to fill in all the cracks that we really just can't fill um, that they, they take a little bit more of a serious look at it and, and treat the fans with a little bit more respect rather than kind of paint by numbers, formulaic movies that, you know, in the end, are you know they just don't feel like sad they're just not satisfying right you know, can can we talk about like just the the label of fan film for for a minute because mm-hmm. when you when you mention that to just anyone i've i've found that the it's immediately met with kind of a looking down on something which i mean that was the first thing that i i mentioned to my wife when i watched never hike in the snow is that like the just the term fan film like I almost feel like it's it, it kind of gives your film almost a, d- a disservice in a way because mm-hmm. to be honest, never hike in the snow is the most it, it was the most enjoyable time I've had with anything having to do with Friday the Thirteenth from part eight on. To be I'm completely honest, wow. it, it reminded me. I think as a part, long time. I think you mean part nine on. No, I, I, I prefer it to eight even. <laughs> no, but honestly, as a lifelong fan and as someone who has spent countless hours like yourself, you know, thinking about every little backstory that I could think of, you know, like people like us or Nat Brimmer, like we live and we breathe this stuff. Mm-hmm. And Never Hike in the Snow was the first time since those early films that I, I was just almost like hopping on my couch like a little kid in excitement about everything that I was watching, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that, the way it's shot, the the amount of love and dedication that y- you all put into this film speaks wonders on how much it means to you. To I mean, it looks better than most of the later films in the franchise. Like, do you ever feel like the the term fan film kind of like makes your film look kind of lesser than it actually is in any way? I understand the perception, but it's kind of at this point, I wear it with a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, I show it off to be like because you know it's part of the rules i have to say i'm a yeah. fan film because i'm not official and it's like i want people to look at it and go how are you not official and that's right. you know and 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 kind of own it and i think that it's kind of a cool uh you know it's a cool little um you know badge of honor for us i think in a way mm-hmm. that you know we're fans and and we come at it that way and we we can kind of inspire other people to show them that like these things are within our their reach i mean we you know we made this film for fifty thousand dollars other people have the ability to raise this money and other people have the ability to crowdfund and do it. And we try to just set an example and show that like, if you have a story to tell, it's, it's worth telling. And if you're passionate about this franchise and it's very lenient towards the fan film world, you know, go out there and take your shot and tell your story. And, you know, just like anyone doing an original independent film uh, to someone who's doing an original independent feature or whatever they plan on doing, it's like everyone has to start somewhere. And I think that fan films are a good playground for people to work with some established characters to kind of work on just getting, you know, storytelling with a camera and then graduating towards things that are a little bit more original or doing them both at the same time like we do. Um, You know, they're really, I I mean, they're just fun to do. I mean, it's, these are the characters we've always loved. 
um, how, you know, how many times are you going to get the opportunity in your life to work on a specific franchise that you ever wanted to work on? And I didn't feel like I was ever going to get that chance. I'm glad I've had this chance now. And for someone, if they, you know, I've had someone tell me like, don't do a fan film. It will ruin your life. You'll lose all your money and it won't come out looking as good as you think it will. And it made me try really, really hard. And I'm kind of the mm-hmm. living proof that no matter what it is, it's not just a fan film, but if you put a lot of time and dedication and, you know, care into the craft that you're trying to achieve and you keep working at it over a long time, um, that you can, you can turn heads when, when you finally do it, if you find the right niche. And it was, I didn't expect a fan film, you know, cause that was the, my whole thing was going in. I didn't expect a fan film to have any impact. I just wanted to get it in a few forums. I wanted to get it maybe on Friday, the 13th franchise.com. Never did I ever think it was going to get to tell your horror show. Um, it was a pipe dream. And slowly but surely with, you know, instead of denying myself the ability to do any of those things before I even tried, I just reached out and asked and I reached out and kind of pushed it as far as I could. And every time I pushed on a door, it kind of opened. And, you know, the last door I'm trying to push and get opened is that studio door and to say, like, I think it's time for that. We graduated from the fan film Mm -hmm. and we came into your studios and we showed you what type of property you really have underneath you know all the garbage that you think it is mm-hmm. it's like because i know no one in those studios is sitting there as a friday the 13th fan giddy to get the rights back they're all going to get it back and go well now what the hell do we do with this right thing? what is this movie the guy with the hockey mask oh <laughs> oh would they still make those you know and then it's just going to get that type of, of thing where it's just like people who don't get it um, yeah i love that you're he, channeling your inner inner phil scuderi there that's your inner <laughs> phil scuderi voice just don't murder anyone yeah, so yeah, um, what, so it's yeah, go ahead. What doors has making Never Hike Alone and now Never Hike in the Snow open for you? Because, like you mentioned, like this is like the weekend warrior project, you get it yeah. when you get everyone together, but you're still working in film and in film production. What sort of doors did like Never Hike Alone open up for you professionally? Um, I was able to get a man- manager, Gavin Dorman, uh, at Schemers Entertainment, and was able to get attached to my first feature film, which is called mm-hmm. The Kindness of Strangers, mm-hmm. about two serial killers that discover each other on the open road and then battle it out to only ones left standing. It's a horror comedy. Um, it's really funny. Um, it's like a dual... Uh, it's like a dual uh, male female lead. So an older gentleman, typical serial killer versus a budding young serial killer. Who's listened to a lot of crime junkies and mm-hmm. thinks that she can be like the world's most perfect serial killer. And they end up crossing paths with each other. And it's pretty like, it's a hilarious, just kind of all out brawl between these two, like, you know, young and old male, female, mm-hmm. it's like, everything comes out kind of in the battlefield. And these two people trying to screw up each other's life goals. Um, and trying to and the people who get stuck in between so it's it's a really fun story i worked with a writer ian bush on it it was his original script i came on to kind of um do a pass and Mm -hmm. we got along right away and we came up some really cool ideas to kind of freshen up the ideas that were already there Mm -hmm. um and really button batten down the script and got into a nice shape so we've been in you know uh, pre-production kind of loops with it because of COVID. We haven't been able to do pitch meetings like we wanted to this summer, mm-hmm. but we're ready to go out with it. And so I'm kind of just waiting for my opportunity to go out and pitch it to some studios and some mm-hmm. investors and get it made hopefully next year. Excellent. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, like the unintended thing was, you know, Wompstom Films kind of taking off. We've been able to help other people get crowdfunded for multiple projects mm-hmm. like Dylan's New Nightmare, Jason Rising. Uh, we helped... Um, get uh, pathosis made and into the telluride horror show last year mm-hmm. uh which was a big step up for us our first original short directed by austin boning mm-hmm. uh, a good friend of mine and, and one of the the people who work with us at womp stomp films um i recently got a film uh 
written out called ghost chicken that we're currently storyboarding. It's going to be our first animated short. So we're working on that for the 2021 season. It's about a vegan restaurant that's haunted by the ghost of a chicken. Excellent. Uh, it's really fun. I'm in. Um, I'm in. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a really good little story. So we're working on our own original stuff and Womp Stomp's building up its popularity. And, you know, I think with our growing popularity and everyone surrounding us with our fan film work, we hope that they join us for our original stuff too. Um, Pathosis is going to release on Halloween this year, which is going to be a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, on the YouTube. And then hopefully next year we're debuting uh, our first animated horror comedy, Ghost Chicken, and you guys will get a nice laugh out of it. And hopefully we'll see that at Telluride Horror in Oh yeah, that's definitely, I mean, yeah, it's definitely where, where I'm going to be aiming to shoot at first. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I loved, I loved the nod to Telluride and never hike oh, in the I snow. Oh, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I had to. I loved yeah. it. Yeah. Saw that. You know, what other what other Easter eggs are there? Um, I kind of noticed like Roy's mask. Mm-hmm. I do like that Jason has a mask guy. Basically, you see all the yeah. different. Well, yeah, that, and that's a setup for another story too. Mm-hmm. We we in these stories we're setting up other stories too. When we go into a room, um, there's a specific story I wanted to tell. That's another prequel. Um, that this room is, is an important kind of stop along the way The the masks kind of interact with another character. You kind of see that, you know, that that's where Jason ended up eventually getting the mask that he wears. Now it's from that same box, but mm-hmm. he picked that one, the one without any chevrons on it or the chevrons that were there washed away. Um, yeah. We painted up one like the Roy one, which was pretty cool. We tried to like kind of, you know, pepper them out and make them different things, but they were ultimately masks for the kids. Um, that would have been there in winter camp 67. That's what the box says that they were bringing it for the camp that year in 67, but there was a fire and they ended up shutting the camp down. So they never played hockey that year, but they kept all the equipment and it sat in a, in a short uh, storage shed somewhere. Um, if you look on the wall, there's some good stuff. I mean, there's the map, but then above it, there's a, there's a nice little token, a uh, nice little kind of plaque that says never hike alone. Saw that. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the little uh, Camp Crystal Lake shirt that was on the thing, uh, mm-hmm. those three pictures, there's uh, a group of girls firing arrows, a bunch of kids diving into the lake. Um, so there's nice little nods there. Uh, up in the attic, you know, we if you watch the music, the Disappear music video, the dead bodies from that movie are in the attic. Mm. Um, and some of the same, and if you watch Disappear, you'll see in the background uh, the bow and arrow, because that's how long we've been planning that kill. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bow and arrow is in that. So you'll see like different things that we've kind of set up in there. Um, there's there, we, we obviously paid homage to Never Hike Alone with the red ribbon that he walks by. The first ribbon that Kyle finds is the one mm-hmm. that he walks by in, in the movie. So we thought that that was a good connection. Um, yeah, and there's just, you know, little nods here and there. Uh, if you look in the, the flashback scene with Mark and his mother, she leans against the, the refrigerator and there's a little phrase that says, take your best shot. That's a reference to part eight with Julius mm-hmm. before he gets his head knocked off. <laughs> but we, we repurposed it for saying, take your best shot, like you're taking mm-hmm. a photo. Um, and I got to give credit to our uh, PA, Kristen Asensio, who came up with that. I basically gave them all the, the alphabet as we were setting up the set. I was like, you have to come up with a reference. <laughs> <laughs> go i'll come back in 30 minutes and so we came back he had that on the fridge and i was just like i love you man this is so good Excellent. um in fact there's there's a there's a there's a reference that didn't make it into into the film we never caught it on camera but there was a just off camera in one of the shots uh there's a little plaque that had their wi-fi on it and uh on the y on the because their name is the hills it was welcome to hill house and the wi-fi password was uh haunted af so <laughs> excellent 
So we had you like know, little things there. Um, and then there was one other, uh, one other uh, Easter egg I'll talk about. In, we, you don't really see it. It ended up getting kind of washed out in the color. But we actually had Pamela's head floating behind Rick's head, way in the hmm. distance in that back room, kind of watching over him. We were like, oh, if we're, we're going to be at Hill House, we're going to have a ghost in the back room. So we kind of put the head in the background and let it catch a little bit of rim light mm-hmm. as kind of to say that like Pamela's ghost was watching over this conversation to see how Rick handled it and how they needed to be prepared if, if something went down. Very cool. That is great. You know, this last week was kind of Christmas for all of us Friday 13th fans with the uh, the Scream Factory box set arriving. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't need anything from Christmas, you know, for Christmas at this point. It, it was just a dream to have everything like that combined. I have mm-hmm. to ask, when, when your whole series is over, will we be getting a box set of all of these really great films? That's the plan. Um, my plan is to, I mean, now that this has come out, I wonder if I can do something that would kind of like fit nicely against it. Um, you know, it's funny, like I never intended to do the the home video stuff, but now that I've done it and I've talked to the guys who run, run the factory and all that stuff and all the stuff that we can order, um, you know, it's just a matter of figuring out like, what is the unit case number? How much do I need of it? Where's the template to have an artist work on it? And so I think that the love and care that we've been putting into each entry and each edition that we do, well, once we get to the end of this, we'll look at that and go, what's the best way to do a box set and put it all in one thing? Um, you know, maybe talk to, you know, seeing how we are, what type of resources we have, but doing a super cut and putting the whole thing together, like one movie, mm-hmm. like, like the Watchmen. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And, and really having fun with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions to be had, but I think right now it's, you know, focus on each movie, um, focus on the home video campaign for each movie, since those are, that's basically what funds us. I mean, we were doing okay in our fundraising. The minute we made the Blu-ray available for pre-order, we hit our goal. Right. So, you know, with doing a Blu-ray comes the cost of saying, okay, I just made the Blu-ray available, but I have to make up a $15,000 debt. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, $15,000 debt right away and then get on top of that before I'm actually going to see return for the movie. Um, which luckily we were able to do. We got, we got way over that. Um, and I was able to put money aside for the, for the Blu-ray campaign um, or the Blu-ray kind of fulfillment that we're doing now. And we're almost done with that here, but it's, yeah, but it, trust me, that box set is in the back of my mind. Like, I, I hope we get there because I really want to do that and have some fun with it. Is there any, actually, I'll, I'll come back to that question. Um, what is the, right now, the status of the next three episodes? Like I know COVID has things shut down. It sounds like everything is planned out. Everything is scripted, storyboarded. Yeah. You know where you want to go with it. What is the turnaround time that you hope to get the next three episodes out? Um, I mean, the next episode uh, with COVID and everything, our, our thought is let everybody get through the holiday season. Um, let's get into early next year. Mm-hmm. March, we'll run the Indiegogo campaign. It takes about a month for that to turn around and about a week for the funds to land. Um, then it's probably going to take about two months of pre-production because we're going to have to build some kill stuff. Um, and then we'll shoot it in the summer, cut it over the summer and post it over the summer and hopefully be back again next fall with the next 25 minutes. Yeah. Um and that's not to say that if we have a really, 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 really successful March and we make double or triple what we think you know mm-hmm. we need, um, then we roll right into the third episode. We okay. do it all at once. It's really up to fans. It, it's, it really comes down to how much funding can we raise without getting into trouble? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we kind of, can we campaign for two things at the same time and get away with it? Um, and are enough fans going to show up? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately this stuff is really expensive. The, the, 
crowdfunding alone and all the fulfillment is way more expensive than I think people realize that when we sell a Blu-ray and it says $25 that we just made, that we've actually made about 13 or 14. Right. So you have to weigh that out over the, you know, the cost of the entire campaign. Yeah, we got a hundred thousand, but we're only really getting about 55 and that's all going into production and how much of that goes into things that don't even go into the movie, like insurance or, you know, location fees or food for the crew or travel, or, you know, we had, we almost paid uh, 1500 bucks for a tow truck to bring our, our, our uh, picture cars to set and we found a deal for just a grand, mm -hmm. but it's still, it's like, it feels like, you know, in LA, there are no favors. You know right. what I mean? There's no going to the local County Sheriff and be like, can I borrow a couple cop cars this weekend? They, they just don't do that out here. Everyone's got their palm out asking for money. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately what fans are doing are, are we're in the most expensive market, but they're trusting us to take this, you know, measly 50,000 bucks and turn it into 25 minutes. That looks like mm -hmm. it could be on, at least the CW. I mean, give us that credit <laughs> at least. I think we, we can kind of match with their quality. Um, and, you know, that's pretty special. I, I think that like, even though it's 25 minutes, if people understood how much 25 minutes of, you know, content costs when it looks like that, usually uh, they would really be understanding what we pulled off. Um, the fact that we had to shoot through a snowstorm that only lasted so many hours and we had to kind of shoot through that and trying to chase it. Those opening scenes, you know, the opening drone shot and him running through the forest, that's me, Evan, Cortland, you know, Hermie and Corey getting up at, at 5, 4, 5 a.m. to chase that storm because mm -hmm. that was the first wave. So the whole opening of the film is one little brief hour, two hour window where we got all those shots. I mean, we didn't waste one shot. I think maybe one shot out of that whole sequence didn't end up in the film. Um, and we were able to sprinkle a little bit from the next weekend in there too to kind of expand the opening a little bit. But we got that in the morning. We chased another storm to get the arrow scene after that and then had to race the had to race the sun because it came out all of a sudden. I think anyone from New England or from the Northeast knows that's kind of how storms happen sometimes. They come hard in the morning and the sun comes out and all the snow's gone by right. the afternoon. And you're like, where to go? And what I liked about that, even though I wish I would have had wall-to-wall -wall winter wonderland throughout the entire film, it kind of had this sense of the storm came and the storm went and it took the boy with him. Mm -hmm. And for me, that sounds like the beginning of a story, Stephen King novel. And I think that that's what makes the story so special is everybody goes into this film thinking it's another slasher film. It's just going to be Jason spilling blood in the snow. And it's actually this really emotional tale that actually has like a lot of emotional undertones. And um, it's, it's surprising in that way. And I think it catches people off guard and that's why they, they tend to enjoy it because it's the unexpected. Um, and that's, that's kind of what we aim for. And it, it's a little heartbreaking too. And it's funny, you mentioned the snow in New England. How many times, like as a little kid, I would go to bed and it was snowing really hard. And I'm like, yay, no school. And then you would wake up and the sun would be out and all the snow was melted. And you're like, yeah. oh, damn, damn. it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then Foster Gloucester would have no school. We had, we had spent uh, a lot of time talking about the, the relationship with the mothers, but there's also the deputy and, you know, it was really heartbreaking because you make it a point on, I believe like three separate occasions to note mm -hmm. he has a wife and he has a young baby at home. And I remember like watching with my 10 year old Ada and like, as soon as he said, like, you know, talk to them in for me. She's like, Oh, he's going to die. And it was heartbreaking. Um, yep. You know, it's that was more. a note that I got from a friend was you should have just wrote that dialogue where he said, well, this is the time where I die now. <laughs> like, of, of course he's going <laughs> to die after saying those lines. Come on. It's, it's such like, a, why do you have to do that then? 
it's such a great death too. I mean, it's like shotgun to the face maniac style. It's fantastic. Exactly. I mean, we looked at maniac, we looked at scanners. We were were Mm -hmm. looking at stuff. Nora Hewitt, who is our visual effects supervisor and her uh, fiance, Mm -hmm. Rachel Lynn uh, Gervig, who both did a fantastic job on the film. Mm -hmm. Um, and they kicked ass. I mean, they built mm-hmm. all that stuff. It was Nora's idea to have the tongue hanging out, mm-hmm. <laughs> which it was so funny. Um, when I saw that, I was just like, you guys, this is great. And, you know, Tom Matthews coming up to me and goes, Vin, you're a sick puppy. Like, this is gross. <laughs> and, you know, having like Tom, you know, Tom reacted to it. Vinny reacted to it. Um, they, they hadn't seen the Mabry stuff. And, you know, it was funny because I told Vin, I'm like, I'm killing your deputy he's like he's getting it he's like okay i was like i'm gonna get you a new deputy for the next episode but he's getting it in this one but you know as it's funny like that deputy used to be in the first version of the script just a uh you know yes sir i'll do whatever you want sir like you know i'm covering it up and he was in on it and it wasn't until i realized that like what if this guy was questioning what if he was one of the good ones yeah you know what if he was asking the right questions what if he was trying to do his job what if he was trying to do his right the right thing um, and he became a more complex character after that. And it brought so much freshness to the, to the franchise because you say like, well, how does he know about Jason? It's like, well, Jason hasn't been around for 30 years. And this town's not exactly toting out like we're Jasonville. Right. You know, this isn't Jason goes it's to hell. Not, where they it's Jason not two burgers. for one burgers. Yeah, it's not that type of world. It's a world where they're ashamed and embarrassed of it. And they don't want people to know it exists. So when new people come to the town and they haven't, been, I mean, who's to say he's from Crystal Lake? You mm. don't know his backstory yet. We're going to find out more about him in the mm-hmm. later episodes. I mean, because we're going to play up this thing that every death counts. And these are real people that are ingrained. Like when we go into that 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 police station, one of my notes for, for a prop is that we're going to have a, a, a the bowling team. You know what I mean? And he's going to be at the end with his hand on Rick's shoulder mm-hmm. because they bowl together. Oh. And that, that feeling of loss of this guy that used mm-hmm. to be a part of this community. And there's another thread that we haven't unfolded for him yet that's going to bring his character even further into the limelight about how important he is to mm-hmm. our characters. And I think that's going to be another heart-wrenching thing. So yeah, every time we kill somebody in this in these films, we're also going to like kind of wrench your heart a little bit, mm-hmm. at least for the first couple episodes. Because once we get to Jason Takes Crystal Lake, kind of the gloves are off. Mm-hmm. At that point, we're turning it into a fun Friday the 13th movie that most people know and and should expect. It's just that by taking this journey that we are with telling story, not only are those deaths going to feel more earned and more fun Mm -hmm. when we finally get to have that fun, but we'll have enough fans hopefully with us in tow that instead of asking 24,000 people, I mean, Mm 2,400 people to raise $100,000, maybe we get 5,000 people or 10,000 people to help us raise 200. And then we can really afford, like, imagine that Cortland death elaborated out over four or five different people in under mm-hmm. four minutes. You know what I mean? And that being a huge kind of, we can really flex our muscles in not only our camera work, but our effects work and just our entire, like, in our, you know, now that we're working with this mm-hmm. post production team, we can go out and pre pro some of this stuff and get some like real top notch visual effects in and do some mm-hmm. really over the top kills and play with some stuff and mm-hmm. really show our imagination. Cause I got a bucket list of kills that I've been holding on to since I was a kid. So it's about time to pour those out and have some fun with them. And it's just going to take some time to get there. And as long as fans kind of buy into what we're doing and they're patient, um, the two, their two options are fund our crowd funds, you know, and help us out and spread the information or keep kicking down the doors of new line and Warner brothers and whoever has the rights at whatever time to say, give these guys a shot, give them a streaming series on shutter and watch the world explode, you know, watch that those, mm-hmm. you know, collect the money, just let, give me the reins and just collect the money. That, what, that's all I'm saying. 
what sort of worries are there? Like eventually the lawsuit gets settled. Eventually mm -hmm. either someone dies and you win that way. Cause they're mm -hmm. both in their seventies. We don't want to be no, crass, no. but let's be real. Or both parties realize there's a lot of money to be had mm -hmm. and you know, you can That's only spend so say. much or, you know, it just gets settled. Is there any worry that like it gets settled and like Blumhouse snaps up the rights or something like a movie goes into production right away. Um, and then all of a sudden, like all the air gets sucked into like an official release. Is there any sort of pressure to like, we need to get this done now? Or do you feel like there's room for both? I feel like there's room for both. That was the original intention. We were supposed mm -hmm. to be like the Pixar short before the main feature. That's how mm -hmm. we wanted to present ourselves. Like here we are with your really well-made short. That's something that you'll really appreciate. But now we're here to watch the big boys out there. Mm -hmm. and trust me, like there are plenty of directors in Friday, you know, not in Friday the 13th. There are plenty of directors in um, town and in this industry that would be great for a Friday the 13th. I mm -hmm. thought David Bruckner was a very wise choice. And I would have mm -hmm. loved to have seen the film that they had put mm -hmm. together. Um, we missed out by not having him. And if they ever welcomed, welcomed him back, I think that would be a great service for all fans everywhere. But he's got Hellraiser now, so good yeah. for him. You know, now you've done Hellraiser. Don't, you know, you took one. Don't don't pull Can't a missile and try to come back to the other. You only get one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's other people out there. I'd love to see Gareth Edwards, who does The Raid, do mm -hmm. a Friday the 13th. Can you imagine the type of action sequences that he the could build insane. for Jason to go? Mm -hmm. I think with myself, I think I presented at least somebody who could be a voice in the room. I can come in as a mm -hmm. consultant. I can come in as a writer. I can come in and help you craft like theory and logic about Friday the 13th that will keep you on track mm -hmm. with fans. Mm -hmm. um, but if someone has a bold vision for it, I'm here for it. I honestly think that, you know, the studio should actually approach Tom McLaughlin and his Jason Never Die script. That's another winter set film that would be done on a very high budget and I think really mm -hmm. work well, well for the fans. And then, like I said, turn a streaming service over to me or turn me over to a streaming service and watch me just run. Because mm -hmm. I've got stories for days and they all have this type of thinking where it's not just Friday the 13th in one box, but everything has to do with Jason or, every, or it has to do with Pamela and it's going to expand on the mythos and it's going to really titillate the fan, not only from the standpoint of those of us like me, you and Jerry who are nerds about this and know everything about the franchise, mm -hmm. but even the people who have never really given Friday the 13th a chance before. I think the, the formula that has scared people away and has really made people be like, oh, it's just about this. When they realize it's about so much more, they're going to be drawn in. And maybe mm -hmm. they'll be able to enjoy the old films just as much because they'll start to see how everything connects. Mm -hmm. And everything that I want to do is just going to add, I think, value to all the other films as it is and kind mm -hmm. of lift them up. And I think that's always been my goal as a filmmaker working in Friday the 13th mm -hmm. is to show everybody this franchise that I know and love and I've always kind of seen in my head, I want to share those pictures with the world. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm so passionate about this is because it's something I've really thought about for a very long time. You had mentioned Tom McLaughlin and I had to ask this. I had made a note here. Um, our friends over at Halloweenies recently interviewed Tom McLaughlin, like really good interview that spawned his like whole career from like training under uh, Marceau Marceau through the Friday the 13th to what he's up to now. And he revealed that like the two of you were out to lunch together and he was like, yeah, I've got this idea for a sequel. And it's like set in the winter in the snow. No one's ever done it. And you've been like, uh, yeah, we're shooting that right now for Never Hike in the Snow. How <laughs> how awkward was the follow-up conversation for the rest it of the It wasn't, it, not with Tom. Tom has mm -hmm. been, Tom sent me a message earlier today saying that he loved what I did. Tom is mm -hmm. the reason why I love Friday the 13th. Part six is my favorite mm -hmm. uh, film. Tom wrote me after Never Hike Alone, came to our, our LA premiere. Um, Tom has been a, a mentor and he 
you know, anytime we have a chance, we go out and we get coffee together out in, out in Hollywood mm-hmm. and we talk film and we talk about the business and, you know, he gives me updates on what he's been working on. I give him updates, what I was working on. And it was funny because I remember seeing two things happened. One, he announced that his film that it was set in winter and two, it was called Jason never dies. And at the time I was working on the big release mm-hmm. for uh, the never hike miniseries. And the last film was called Jason never dies. And I went, Oh shit. And I was, <laughs> but in my, I'm like, I can come up with something else, but I was mm-hmm. like, but I don't want Tom to think that I'm snake in his wave when I make this announcement on the first, mm-hmm. because I've been pitching never hike in the snow for over a year. I've been pulling people aside at conventions and showing them secret photos that I had on my phone and saying, this is what's coming next. This is how we're doing it. We're doing mm-hmm. a prequel over the winter. And then we shoot the whole thing next year. Um, and so I just called up Tom. I said, Hey Tom, I got to tell you something. Let's go get some coffee. We sat down. I said, Hey, I want, I want you to know now this is what's going on. And I don't want you to get caught blindsided by it. And for a long time I've said, I was like, Tom, like we need to get you back into, into the, the studio and I want to help you any way that I can. And I want to get into the streaming services. Mm-hmm. And if you can help me, like, I think we can be a great one, two punch, mm-hmm. you know, bring back the, the franchises, arguably best director and bring up the upstart kid, uh, the 37 year old child mm-hmm. who is making fan films with his friends in the woods in California. Um, but I think that between the two of us, we can really bring that sense of trust that fans want. You know, I, you said before, it's like, what, what do the studios need to do? No matter who it is, they got to bring someone into this seat that that director's seat for Friday the 13th, that's going to bring the passion that wants to work on the film. Mm-hmm. It's not just their recovery film from Pathfinder. Right. You know what I mean? It's something that they've been waiting for their entire mm-hmm. life, that when they get the reins of this movie, that they don't say, oh, Friday the 13th, the original is a piece of crap. We can mm-hmm. make it better. They say, I love those movies and they shaped who I am. And now mm-hmm. I want to bring my story to the world. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm one of you and let's go mm-hmm. on this adventure together. I think that's what I bring. And I know that a lot of studios would look at me and go like, well, you have no experience. You've made fan films through Indiegogo and what else have you done? But it's, I've worked in the studio system. I've helped. Mm-hmm. I've worked on $70 million animated films. I've done my, I've done my legwork. I've trained under great directors. Um, I've mentored under great producers and, you know, I'm doing this all with one hand tied behind my back by working a 40 hour job and 48 hour mm-hmm. a week job and this. So, you know, imagine, I'm, I think that I'm, I'm a good investment. You know, I work mm-hmm. cheap. <laughs> obviously uh, you know, we're making these things for peanuts. You know, when you think about the types of productions that, you know, when I work on the rookie, you know, mm-hmm. one of the, one of my jobs as a PA for that, for that show. I mean, I can tell you, we spend millions of dollars per episode and we probably spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. They can spend a whole never hike in the snow in probably half a day. Right. So, um, you know, when people say like, is this all we get for what we've paid? Like they have to understand what we're in relation to. We're not in relation to the fan films you've seen where your friends have gone to the backyard with their other friends and shot with their mom's handy cam and, you know, built stuff out of, you know, twigs and berries. Like right. we're hiring the best, we're getting the best equipment, we're getting the best effects, mm-hmm. you know, we're renting out the right time with the right places and we're paying the permits and the insurance and SAG, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough to, to fight for every dollar for your film. And we do a pretty good job of it. And I think as we go forward, we're going to continue to get better at it as well. Was there backlash because it's, you know, the obviously never hike alone is like close to an hour long. So it feels like, and it feels like a more self-contained story. Obviously Mm -hmm. this is part of a larger story. There are more episodes to come. Um, Was there some backlash from folks that said like 30 minutes, like what's going on here? Okay. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't, I understand that. I know what the perception is. It's mm-hmm. one, it's the, it's the thing I knew I was going to have to fight from the very start of the film, mm-hmm. because I tried to reiterate to people, like the reason why we didn't do Blu-rays right away is because it's a 25 minute episode. I was mm-hmm. going to put never hike in the snow and never hike again on the same disc. So 
Um, and when everyone's like, we'll take this one and we needed help crowdfunding, we did it. And we did it, you know, telling everybody, this mm-hmm. is what you're getting. Um, and so we understand that part of it. Now it's part of a, uh, it's part of a bigger story. It's part of a mini series. And what mm-hmm. I want people to realize about Never Hike Alone is that we had a huge cheat in that film. And that's the fact that we had one actor and that actor worked for free mm-hmm. and he was a friend. And so when I said, let's go into the woods this weekend and add five more minutes to the film, Andrew said, sure. Mm-hmm. And we went and I took a camera and two other people and him, and we shot with nobody. And the only thing that it cost me that weekend was lunch. Mm-hmm. And we came back and we would add five minutes to the film just by going to this camp that we didn't need to pay rent to. And we could build a set, shoot it at the end of the day and come up with some of the glorious scenes that you saw in the film mm-hmm. that were made with no money, because that's what the, the camp gave us. And we just used what we had. Um, that's about 25 minutes of the film. Um, and the other 25 minutes, 25 minutes of the film of this $50,000 film where the $50,000 went is the stunts, the effects, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. All that stuff of Jason fighting, the night shoots, the face reveals, the head crushes, uh, the ambulance scene. Right. All that, the ambulance scene alone was $8,000. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about 25 minutes of material in that movie that cost $50,000. 25 minutes of material in Never Hike in the Snow cost the same amount of money and we made it look that much better. The only thing we didn't have this time around was the singular character in which we could go and add special scenes to. But I'm lying a little bit because some of those scenes that we shot with the deputy wandering around camp, guess what? We did that with Brian, me, Evan, and an AC. And we were able to add two little beats in that scene, the mask scene and the, and the ribbon scene. Because when I watched mm-hmm. the original cut, I said, you know what? I need some of the old camp in here because we're mm-hmm. shooting at our other locations. And I need to tie it back to the place where this all began. So it ties back to Never Hike Alone. And we went up and we shot that over a weekend being COVID compliant with a very small team. Mm-hmm. And so that was the only thing that I could add after that, because after that, he gets his head blown off and everything. And everything outside is, you know, needs snow. And we were shooting this in spring or right. actually in the summer. So there was no snow outside, but we were in interior and we could fake it. Right. So, you know, that's where we were able to stretch it. And trust me, if we weren't COVID uh, restricted, we would have tried to shoot the opening scene of the next film, which would have explained kind of what happened afterwards. And that's mm-hmm. what you're going to see in the next episode is we were, probably could have filmed the opening scene of Never Hike Again. Um pretty easy with no budget. And I bet I could have got Tom to come out and just shoot this one section of it for probably just lunch that day. Mm -hmm. And we could have come up with a nice teaser at the end of it that would have helped us kind of sell what we're, where we're stepping into next. But obviously we got restricted right away and there was no coming back after looking at a, at a, you know, if I could have gone and looked at a, at a cut and then come back out and add some stuff um, maybe I would have, but at the same time we shot that in six days, you know, six days spent about 35, to Mm $38,000. And then we had $12,000 left over for post-production, which we spent, you know what I mean? We had to get it colored. We had to get the sound, we had to get the music and Mm -hmm. it is, you know, and you know, all the other things in between that you end up, you know, there were additional costs after the film that we didn't anticipate that Mm -hmm. we ended up having to pay, you know, SAG really hit us pretty hard with some of their fees. Um, But luckily we have a contingency when we were able to do it. So it's, Yeah. So we understand at the end of it, like it's very abrupt. The story stops. But again, if you frame it in the sense of this, if this was season one of Stranger Things, you know, season four, you know, Mm -hmm. if this was episode one and this was the pilot to start off the season, the boy Mm -hmm. has gone missing. You know, they don't find the boy at the end of the first episode. Right. They uh, or they don't settle the entire story, don't have the big conflict at the end of the first episode. 
my only other option, you know, having in Never Hike Alone, Tommy not seeing Jason for 30 years and reacting to him the way he does, that two things could have happened in Never Hike in the Snow. I could have had Tommy face Jason and kill him uh, in some way, or at least put him down in a way that would have reflected that. But I didn't have the budget or the time to tell that story and do it justice. So I had to come up with something else in which Tom had the right idea, mm-hmm. but he still has his nemesis in Rick and reminding people that, you know, there are other people to answer to in this town and that this is a time where Tommy failed. And that's usually how most stories start with the hero failing and the repercussions of this event, the repercussions of both this boy going missing and this cop going missing, because they're not going to find his body either. And they're not going to find Jason. They're not going to find anything. They're just going to show up at the camp. And once again, people are going to disappear. There's a reason why we named the, uh, the music video disappear, not just because of the title of the song, but because that's what happens to people when they go into Crystal Lake and no one can explain it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so frustrating. That's why Rick hides this because how is he supposed to justify an undead killing machine who he can't prove exists to his superiors, who he would be going to in the state department. He can't list these people as being murdered. He's going to list them as missing because mm-hmm. people go missing in the forest all the time and it won't bring heat down on him. He'll keep his job, his cushy little job is like the, you know, the mayor from jaws in this town right. pretty much. And because um, I got to imagine aside from Jason and that's a big aside from, but like, yeah. you know, aside from Jason, it's probably not a bad gig. No. It's a simple town. They pull over people for, you know, it's, it's just like the town I grew up in. All they do is pull over people who drive too fast, Yeah, you know, and, and occasionally Tommy gets drunk and spouts off or Tommy mm-hmm. gets drunk and ends up at the camp and they got to pull him out of there and they find him and they send him home and he goes back to mm-hmm. work. But Tommy's a local. Tommy's more of a local and more of one of the camp crystal and more of the crystal Lake people than, than Rick will everywhere. And that pisses of him off mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter how many times he arrests Tommy. The guy who runs the, 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 the hospital is never going to fire him. Mm-hmm. He loves him probably lifelong friends with his family when they moved, mm-hmm. when their family moved here earlier in the thing, it's like, that's what a small town is like. And I think that mm-hmm. that's what people will realize. It's like, you know, that, that there's such a close knit community yeah. here. And, you know, Tommy's been feeling this guilt and this weight for bringing these people into so much danger after resurrecting Jason after part six. And he still wears that guilt on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a big, it becomes a big plot point as we move forward. Yeah. Jerry, did you want to weigh in, my friend? Or, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I did have something I was I was been thinking about this whole time. You know, I, I think a lot of fans, one of their biggest complaints about the remake and also Freddy versus Jason is that a lot of the kills just weren't that memorable. You know, and mm-hmm. when you have a series as strong as the first eight films i mean it's almost like a a highlight reel of how you could do excellent kills in a slasher film a series exactly. i th- watching never hike in the snow that opening kill is now probably one of my 10 favorite kills in the entire series like yeah. as as a fan of the series did you want to just come out of the gate with this one and be like this is a return to the kills that you guys all love yes Exactly. It was, it was, what was I missing? I was missing the ingenuity from the kills, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that Tom Savini used to set up his, his kills in one and four, um, some of the kills from part two, uh, even the kills in Jason X. I mean, geez, um, you know, they're over the top or something like that. We wanted to do something that, that really shocked the audience. And yeah, I, I will fully admit that it was a goal that we made a kill so good that people would be like, yeah, this belongs in the top five or Mm -hmm. top 10 list of a Friday the 13th because we've never seen this before. And how cool is it that the person who um, 
who made that kill happen is a student of the Tom Savini design school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Nora Hewitt, who is the, the season nine winner of face off. So it's a cool lineage. It's a cool lineage call back to Friday the 13th of the fact that one of Tom Savini's students came back and, and did his legacy proud. Um, and, you know, I think that means a lot for us to have, you know, Nora come in and, and do this, um, you know, taking up the mantle of, of Kelsey Burke, who did an amazing mm -hmm. job on the first film. But after Never Hike Alone, Kelsey's career took off. She was she went and worked on Swamp Thing. Um, she's been flying all over the world, working on the biggest shows. We're so proud of her. Um, and it was a big hole to fill. And luckily, I, I ended up getting uh, getting a role in 13 Fanboy, the Deborah Voorhees uh, movie mm -hmm. that she's been mm -hmm. working on. I ended up going out and being a stunt actor for that and getting a small little cameo in the film. And I met Nora while I was out there and we worked a lot together because I worked with Deb in the camera department on some of the kills and helped them uh, kind of design some of those. And so Nora and I kind of worked side by side and we would hang out at night. And I'll never forget, I pitched her disappear and never hike in the snow back to back one late night on a porch in New Mexico, mm -hmm. acting the whole thing out, you know, the arrow scene, I'm running in one direction, I'm pulling me you know, I'm running back and forth. And she just watched me act both films out and was like, I want to be a part of this. And she's been a part of it ever since she went and did the kills for disappear. And mm -hmm. then she came back and, and we gave her the, the ammunition to go really flex her muscles here. She assembled an amazing team, you know, not just being a leader in the sense that she came out and created this great artwork and, created these great kills, but that she hired, you know, some of the greatest minds in, you know, in the industry to come on work on this. People who worked on it, who had worked on Halloween, who, you know, Bill Hunt, who's a, a really well-known effects artist, uh, came and did a lot of our design concept work. He built our new Pamela head. Uh, he designed, did like the concept work for Mark's head, both like as he's living with the, with the ax in his mouth and then the post dead Mark with like the jaw hanging down. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was crazy because it really felt similar to when I was in animation and we used to be in that, those pre-production phases where there was an art director, where there were concept art coming in, that we were following storyboards and we were coming off of stuff that everyone could see. And we came so close to our concept work. Everyone had such a, like our vision that we had for it, that we all collectively shared was kind of all on the same page. So we were able to move much faster. There was less conversation on set, more doing. Um, and that really kind of played off into uh, the way that we were able to execute these scenes with not only high level effects, but then the camera work on top of it. It, it all became one fluid motion. And that's something we want to continue. You, you, know, but, you first, Jerry. No, I was going to say uh, my favorite film in the entire Friday 13th franchise has always been the final chapter mm -hmm. for so many, so many reasons. I mean, not just Ted White being amazing, but for the fact that it's the one film out of the entire franchise that I care about the characters the most. Like every single character, when they die, I, I feel awful, you know, especially Rob in the, in the basement, you know, yeah. that, you know, like it's, it's just such a gut wrenching death and the death that opens never hike in the snow at first, as, as you're watching it, you're like, Oh wow, that's gruesome. That this is insane. It's and cool. as the story, yeah. And as the story goes on and you learn about this character, it gives you the same feelings that, you know, I get watching Rob's death in four that you're like, this is, was a real person. Like you said earlier, you know, a person who has a family, has a mother, and it makes that death that much more shocking and I, I think uh, impactful. You know, like, I, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously that was your goal from the beginning, but how has the reception been just in the short time that it's been out with people seeing that death and seeing kind of the character development as the film goes on? I mean, I think people are picking up what we're putting down 
in that sense. And, and, you know, you're, you're catching on to it. And I think a lot of people are, are seeing it. And that was like, after the movie, we start slowly moving on the audience and they don't realize it. You know, it starts in the scene with the deputy and you see like, Oh, it's 17, you know, he's only 17 and even Rick kind of having a, a reaction to it and then showing up, you know, starting on those photos, like here he is, he, he was a real person. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He's a photographer. Here he is as a child, you know, just freshly born with a dog that probably doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, this kind of like, there's a history here. He's been alive for 17 years and now no more. And, you know, you meet this mother and, you know, through the scene, like I always thought about it, like I'm slowly creeping up behind the audience so I could remove their hearts without them really noticing mm -hmm. it. And it wasn't until, you know, Mark blows that death kiss where she sits down and it dissolves to his dead face, which is my, this is kind of like my hereditary reference. I was like, this is my hereditary moment. We're cutting to Charlie's head. It's a great shot. And it's a great, you know, it's different, but reminded me of like the full moon coming through the eye hole and, never hike alone like i love that the kind of like similar thing where now like the corpse is you know kind of just slowly kind of pushing where the picture of like mark and repose was yeah we it, you know my editor mike um always laughs at that scene because he remembers when i was pitching it to him before we even shot one scene and i was describing this and that's been that's been uh something that's been in the film since the very beginning was this moment i was like and then we're going to dissolve to his dead face all torn apart and like i was like so giddy about it he was just like i just thought that was so disturbing and then when i actually saw it happen and it was real he's mm -hmm. like i just laughed my ass off to just think about like how crazy i thought you were in the moment but then it came to fruition and how much I love this moment. And it, you know, it's, it's me, I still laugh at the shot because they, you, when you actually pull out all the way, you have Mark there who's got his jaw hanging down. And then you have Pamela with her jaw hanging down. And I hope someone does like a meme on the cut where it's like one person singing and then she can like join in on the harmony as they pull out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just have this kind of like sick sense of humor about it. But yeah, it was really about that. And then right when you're feeling bad for Mark and his mom, then you feel bad for Jason and his mom. And mm -hmm. in this moment when you're feeling bad for Jason for the first time, probably ever, um, you jump out and realize that Tommy's about to burst in and blow the back of his head off. Mm -hmm. And it, it like it, you know, all these emotions. I, I think that that was a cool thing about the, the storytelling in this is that we were able to really ride the emotions in a really cool way, bring you way down then bring you back up and have these moments of excitement. And then, yeah. And, you know, steal your breath away a little bit by cutting things short mm -hmm. and, um, leaving people with something to talk about. And I think that that's ultimately, you know, one of the things that Friday should do is get the fans talking, get mm -hmm. the fans debating and looking a little bit closer. And that's one thing we do to pay attention to. Um, and so as we go forward, we'll continue to lay that emotional groundwork. So each time we step into a new character or we introduce some people, if you start to get to know them, uh, Game of Thrones, they're going to go. <laughs> so, the person you start to love is probably going to die next. Excellent. So Jason takes Crystal Lake will be your red wedding. Excellent. Yes, it really um, is the way. It really is. So you said something that kind of piqued my ears up a little bit. You uh, when you said like if like Tommy were like to come in and incapacitate Jason or kind of take him out, and I was wondering. Obviously, you have like if not the support, you have like the blessing of the official persons behind that have the franchise right now to some degree the is, blind eye really the blind is eye is. is there anything they say to you like okay you can't do this like you can't you can't like reenact the end of h2o and decapitate jason you can't do something that's gonna like permanently take him out 
No, I mean, I, they have, there's no stake in what I'm doing. Okay. You know, we don't make enough money for them to want to even sue us because they'll spend more money on the, on the legal proceedings mm-hmm. than they will getting money out of us. Okay. Um, in fact, they can inherit some of the debt that we incur when we mm-hmm. do the films when we're in between kind of campaigns. But, um, you know, there's everything that I get from every director, every actor, you know, every now and then like an actor will be like a little questionable about like, are you one of the crazy ones? And then they see what we do and they kind of see that like, mm-hmm. there's a, there's something genuine to what I'm up to and there's some, and, and there's real skill being put into it and there's real mm-hmm. teams. And so they, they look past the fan film. It's always mm-hmm. kind of nice to walk up with like, you know, kind of have that brand on your face of like, mm-hmm. Oh, okay, this is a bad sign, but then overcome it and still win people over with it. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's a challenge, but it makes it that much more um, satisfying when somebody turns around and goes, yeah, I'm, I'm all about a fan film. Mm-hmm. And I think that opens up the doors for other filmmakers to take their shots. And I think you're seeing a lot of a really good crop of fan filmmakers showing up and kind of building out this new section of the indie horror community mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I, you know, we've all struggled to raise money for our independent films that nobody understands quite the concept of, or mm-hmm. there's nothing really bankable that you can really sell. It's just that people are trying mm-hmm. to bid that, you know, I think that if other pr- filmmakers open themselves up to fan films, they might be able to build themselves some, some credit, you know, if they tackle a, a franchise that hasn't really been tackled yet, filling a void that is there that mm-hmm. nobody really knows about telling the story of these films that like hasn't been told before. I think that we've proven that like, if you understand your fan base and you know how to reach them, you can make an impact and then turn around and still tell original stories at the same time. It's not one or the other. I actually had a couple questions on both the fan films and the indie horror portion of it. How much of a temptation is there to say like, look, we know we can raise you know, $50,000 doing a Friday the 13th fan film. And obviously you have a ton of ideas. How tempting is it to say like, I'm going to try to raise $100,000 or a a buck and a quarter through Indiegogo and then try to get that matched through some, you know, small production company. How anyone who, yeah, go ahead. How, what sort of ideas do you have on your own that you're like, you know, I can make like a good slasher or a great indie horror movie for like a hundred thousand, 250,000. Cause I look at like what um, Benson and Moorhead are able to do with the endless, with the resolution, with spring for less than 50,000. I look at what um, Jeremy Gardner has done for like 6,000 bucks with a battery and however much after midnight costs, which wasn't a lot. Bray Grant, who is making a ton of like great indie horror right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what, sort of temptation is there to say like we're going to do the friday stuff but i want to parlay that into my own original ideas and even if it's outside the studio um i know that like people can invest in me because i can make this happen i think that that's what we're trying to prove right now um Mm -hmm. you know obviously like it's funny like and i think about that like i think about the money we raise and how we're able to kind of produce what we produce and you know every now and then like there are other independent filmmakers out there at five thousand bucks and make an entire feature Mm -hmm. you know i think when it comes to those types of productions it depends on you know i think like how we Mm -hmm. were able to luck out on never hike alone we had a situation Mm -hmm. in which we could create content without really creating too much cost and overhead Mm -hmm. and um, unfortunately the movies that we're making with this like really everything it it's like we're getting charged to the max on almost everything Mm -hmm. um which, you know, we, we do work on our deals and we try to find the best deals we can possible. But ultimately, like I said, like in LA, we don't have those opportunities that I think that, you know, and I've thought about moving to another state, going to a place where I might be able to get a lot more bang for my buck mm-hmm. um, and be able to, and that might be in my future to go somewhere where, yeah, it might be a small, it, it might be a little bit of a further drive to get the proper equipment, 
But now that everyone's in LA and I can just call them out to wherever I am and we can mm-hmm. shoot wherever I am, it might be easier and more costly, you know, more cost effective to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, my goal with never hiking the snow is to finish it up and get that out. And in between never hiking the snow and uh, never hike again is to sneak ghost chicken in there and get people, you know, amped mm-hmm. up about an original animated film that we want to do and show another side of Wompstomp films that people haven't seen before mm-hmm. and go get that, um, animated with a company in Burbank called Renegade Animation and, uh, and launch from there. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, we get that emotion and then we go to work on Never Hike in the Snow because in mm-hmm. animation, I can work off a computer the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do my meetings with storyboard artists and animators and I can go in and watch dailies and stuff like that. It's a much different process. I can do live action and animation at the same time, which is a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely want to do that. But I think ultimately... What I'm trying to do and, and what my goal is with Kindness of Strangers and other projects that I have and that ilk that I can go and I can pitch any studio is to get something done made with the proper budget and the proper team. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of these, as much as I admire everyone who can, you know, scrape and scratch and, and really pull it together and be a one man band and do their all their own visual effects and all that own stuff. It's it's I wasn't gifted with those those skills. And even though mm-hmm. I could probably learn how to do some VFX and I can edit a little bit and I can do that stuff. I just feel like my my contribution is a storyteller. You know, my mm-hmm. contribution is direction. It's not being the best at one of those elements. It's being good enough to know what everyone does and respect what their craft is mm-hmm. and get that extra 10% out of everybody and really lead story and, and show people the storytelling techniques from all aspects and understanding all aspects rather than one narrow view, um, which I think a lot of people do from different perspectives and different departments. But I really feel like I'm like my biggest asset is the fact that I want to be a director's director. I don't want to be, I, I'm not even, I don't even consider myself really a writer director. I consider myself someone who is best when I take someone else's pages and I interpret it and I turn it into a vision. Mm-hmm. And I've always had that ability and it's taken a long time to prove it. Um, and, you know, I want to be put in that seat where I can take some bigger films, some $500,000, million, $2 million films and really drive something and, and really push the boundaries of what can be done for independent film. Because mm-hmm. if we can make this stuff look good for 50 grand, um, and we can reach, you know, we reach the level of which, you know, the same thing when we get like a full feature budget version of that, you know, $150,000 that would get most of the rest of this movie made. But I will say the ending, I would say I could get the next two episodes made for about if we raise not in crowdfunding $150,000, but if we raised like 250 and we got 150 out of that, I could probably make the next two episodes. The last episode will probably be between 50 and 75 on its own. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's probably the shortest episode, but it has the most effects. Mm-hmm. And we want to do some really daring things like some miniatures, like figuring out how to shoot the camp in miniature form while characters fight in the camp and the entire camp's on fire. Because how are we going to do that in San Bernardino National Forest where they're right. dealing with forest fires? You know what I mean? Um, so we have to figure out some things behind it, but there are ways to do it. And ultimately, it's our job and my producer's job to break down that budget in line item form and say, we went and we scouted all the areas. We got all of our our bids. This is how much it's going to cost. And we're going to stick to this budget as tight as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and we pulled more value out of, out of, you know, what we got out of Never Hike in the Snow than was originally written. You know, three of those scenes weren't written in, like the Pamela scene wasn't in there. Um, the deputy scene wasn't in there. It mm-hmm. used to end much differently and not as fun. If you thought that was a cliffhanger, you should have seen the old ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we added more beats with um, 
with Mark and his mom and all this stuff, it started off as really as, as a small short, you know, the original mm-hmm. version of it ended with Jason on the hood. That was like before we crowdfunded, that was what I was going to do when mm-hmm. I was trying to raise it privately was just do the big kill, then do Jason in the hood. And then we'd see it, you know, then we'd pick up six months later. I just mm-hmm. got more money and I wrote a bigger script out of it. Um, and you know, I think that, that that's kind of what we'll do with the future films too, is that we have our scripts, we know what we want to do, but as we're going, we're going to find opportunities to tell a good story and then weave that in and try to get extra days out of it Mm -hmm. um, and just expand it as best we can. But this is kind of like the operating budget that we work on. um, And we're always trying to get better and, and, you know, get more bang out of buck for each Mm -hmm. moment we're on, we're on film, but uh, ultimately like, yeah, we're always trying to spend less. That's for sure. You had mentioned you're now a co-producer on the other kind of like big, the other like known um, fan film that's coming out, um, Jason Rising. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things I think you've always championed, like we look at like the fan pages, people would make comparisons or they might, you know, it's obviously we're always competing for um, eyeballs, but at the same time, like I think one of the things you've done has always treated it like there's room at the table for everybody. And when someone has said, well, I don't want this. I want this. You've been like, Hey man, there's room for both. I'm not going to slag somebody else. Um, what mm-hmm. has it been like to work with this production and what do you feel like, how do you feel like you've helped them out? And like, what are you excited to see from it? I mean, I think what really excited me was that I was a fan of it. I mean, as mm-hmm. soon as I watched it, I mean, I think one of the other things with other fan films sometimes is as a fan, I'm not so much even into what they're going to, but I understand mm-hmm. why they're going that direction. Like, I'm like, okay, I understand what fan they're appealing to. I'm not that fan, but go and do it. And like, all I have ever really tried to spread around the community is don't make false promises, deliver on everything you say you're going to do and, and don't not release your movie. Cause the minute someone doesn't release their movie and people have handed stuff over, we're going to be, we're all being in big trouble. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like a community guideline to be like, if we see somebody stepping out of line, if we see someone misusing the money or misusing, you know, the good nature of, um, of the fans that we're going to step in and, and just kind of be like, Hey, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. I think we've done that with a couple of, of films and, you know, luckily uh, all those films have come out um, mm-hmm. and, you know, we've helped people uh, as best we can. And with the Jason rising team, um, you know, I've always just been inspired by their story. I mean, it's a part four story. We see a headless Pamela walking around. So Pamela mm-hmm. rises from the dead too. It's a much different tone. It's got like an evil deadish kind of t- mm-hmm. type tone without going into the Necronomicon. Um, and I just really like James Sweet, who's the, the director, and Carl Winery, who's mm-hmm. the, the director of photography. They're both really good guys. Um, you know, Carl's in a, in a, in a metal band, Legia, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember the other one, which I forget at the moment. Uh, but he also shoots his own music videos, and he's a really good cameraman. And James is an actor, and that's where he comes from. And so mm-hmm. what I really love is talking to the people who who were me before I finished Never Hike Alone. Like they have knowledge, but they've, and they might've made a couple of movies, but they're trying to take that step. They're trying to go from, you know, we've all been there. We've made movies with our friends or we've been a part of an independent production and we watch it and we go, why didn't that come out the way that I thought it was going to come out? What held us back? And then being at a, you know, at a festival and looking at your film and then looking at the next guy's film or the next females, uh, I mean, sorry, the next director's film. um, And you say, how did they get it to look like that? Ours doesn't look anything like that. And they spent less money than us. What are we doing wrong? And Mm -hmm. so I think what I try to do is go in and say, okay, here's all the dead ends. 
here's where you're going to find a lot of trouble or here's where, you know, your script is going to show potential for hurting your overall, um, you know, production value is saying like, you're going to put a lot of money into this and you're going to have nothing left for that. Mm -hmm. How are you going to pull this off? And really just kind of looking at their scripts and making sure they're not wandering all over the place. Um, because building, you know, a short is one thing, building full features is another. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, get lost along the way, I think. And that's one thing that I've always been able to really help with is from my, you know, my development days and my script uh, supervision days and, and, you know, storyboarding and editing. It's, I have a really strong sense of, of story. And so they usually come to me, um, you know, I work with them on set. I, I, I've helped them shoot a few things. I help them mm -hmm. shoot the opening of the movie, which is available on YouTube to watch right now as a sneak preview. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, they just send me scripts. They say, hey, we came up with this scene or we want to try this or, hey, look at this cut. And I sit down and I kind of give them like, okay, here's what you did. Here's maybe where you're screwed up. Um, mm -hmm. If you can reshoot that, that'd be a good thing. But if you can't, you can fix it by this. And what's the logic here? And I always like try to focus it down on getting them to solve their own problems. Mm -hmm. So saying, what is this scene about? What are your characters trying to accomplish at the end of the scene? do you need this extra stuff or how do you get there just by doing this? Or is there another like interesting way to cover this cinematically by staying in this angle rather than cutting around a lot, you know, mm -hmm. trying to just keep them from making some of the reactionary decisions we make as, as first time uh, filmmakers um, and get them to kind of set back and see it with a little bit bigger picture scope. And so it's a lot of that's just conversation and seeing how they feel about it. Me just giving my opinion and then letting them go. And you know, they ask me stuff about, you know, a lot of conversations about crowdfunding, how to fulfill, um, what are good techniques on, you know, keeping your lists up to date and keeping track of who you've given what to when orders get split up, um, you know, where to post stuff when people need to download things. Uh, and it's all stuff that I had to learn on my own. And if I can help someone skip a few steps and bang in their head against the table for, you know, a week so they can concentrate on their production, mm -hmm. that's a victory for me. So it means that everyone else is getting better at this. And it just means the content around the community is just going, it's like, you know, a raising tide, you know, a raising tide raises all ships. So we're trying to do that as best we po as possible with these, with these films, but at the same time, give these, you know, artists, their own chance to grow and learn and fail and not really be there too hard to be like, well, you know, that sucks. You know, it's, it's really like, is that what you want? The film's not coming out tomorrow. Do you want to change it? Mm -hmm. Here's how you change it. And this is how we do it. And so it's really about kind of that first never hike alone process of just going through the motions and not stopping until you get it the way you want it. And then after that, learning from all those mistakes, buttoning it down and becoming a real well-oiled machine when it comes to creating more content. Right. And so this is not only for the, the film that they're making now, but the film that they're going to make after it, that they're going to learn mm -hmm. from working with me. And then after that, they're not going to need me there because they're going to be their own. And that's really what the, what the mission is. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Jerry, what else do you have, my friend? Yeah, you know, I'm just writing this out right now. Like, there's <laughs> been so much said in this like conversation for the good. Like, it's it's been a, such a, a blast. So, I, I guess my last question then is more of a general. Out of the big three, like there's Michael, there's Freddy, there's Jason, and I think that obviously, like Halloween is one of the touchstones in horror cinema, and we saw in 2018 the Blumhouse version went on to become like the most financially successful slasher of all time. Um, you know, Wes Craven with a nightmare in Elm street, I think like really gave the genre. It's my all time favorite series and franchise overall. That said, there's something about Jason that inspires a passion in the fan base, especially considering he hasn't been in cinema since 2009. 
what mm-hmm. do you think it is at the end of the day about this character that inspires the rabid passion from the fans? I would argue more than Michael and even more than Freddie. It's hardcore. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the, the hardcore nature of the films, but really I think it comes down to the hockey mask. Mm-hmm. I think for some whatever reason, shape or form, there's something about that choice, that accidental choice mm-hmm. that turned this from just another slasher to the most iconic really look of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in many ways, shapes or forms, the hockey mask have been used, but Jason's, I, I, you know, I told this to my brother, we were sitting, we were actually camping at the never hike alone camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went up there, we had something, we have something called the brothers Thanksgiving. And so for a couple of years in a row, we went up to the, the never hike alone camp and camped out there overnight. And one night we were sitting by the fire and I brought the mask with me so I could like kind of mess around and scare them. And I was talking about, it. I was like, literally like, it doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter whoever worked on this franchise. It's like the minute you show this anywhere, like somebody sees that mask, they know exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about. And we're all drawn together by this thing, this, this thing that scares us. And I think that for some reason, because Jason was unstoppable, because Jason was the, you know, the source of so many people's nightmares in some way, shape or form, um, that he just became that iconic, you know, Dracula Frankenstein mummy for, mm-hmm. for our generation. And like you said, like you, you know, your love is, is Freddy Krueger. That was your boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was, you know, Jason and for other people's it's Michael or Leatherface or, you know, Pinhead or, or whatever it is from that genre. But for some reason, Jason got the most movies and he, uh, you know, has the highest body count. And so he just kind of, you know, emulated everything that the 80s slasher boom became. I mean, everybody was cop. I mean, Halloween created Friday the 13th, but everyone was copying Friday the 13th, yeah. which is even Halloween movie. did. Yeah. And even Halloween wrapped around back around mm-hmm. and did it. And everybody was ripping off Italian giallos. So it was the <laughs> Italian people who brought the slasher mm-hmm. to the world. Uh, <laughs> at, thank you, Mario Bava and Fulci and, and mm-hmm. all you guys, but it was uh, in Argento and all that stuff, but it was, you know, so I think it was something about just that look, that iconic look that he has. And it's the hockey mask. And at the end of the day, that's why I say is the most important design element of Jason. It's like, once you get the hockey mask right, everything else, even the story seems to fall into place. Mm-hmm. It's like when Jason looks right on screen, the story feels right. And when Jason looks wrong on screen, the whole story feels off sometimes. And it's, it's really weird. And that's how it was for me. And that's why I could never get into the new line films because Jason looks so different from the Jason that I knew. Less menacing, a little bit more weird, a little bit more melted and bloated. Um, I yeah, Folks, just real I, crummy. I'm going to apologize to our listeners right now and remind everyone that this is a Jason Goes to Hell Stan podcast, okay? Wormy, <laughs> wormy. <laughs> worry no i mean yeah it's fine if you love jason goes to hell i get it i love jason I, goes i've to done hell. the the heart of darkness interview i've, I've said my piece to adam <laughs> he knows how i feel but it's nice Wait. that like no matter how different i feel about you know jason goes to hell adam mm-hmm. marcus is now a friend and a mentor mm-hmm. and we talk openly about friday the 13th and someone who i would have I would have doubted their passion for it mm-hmm. once I got to know him and realized where he really wanted to go with that and what his vision really was. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, you were me, but you never had a chance. Right. And so I think that that's the, mis- that, that's the mistake that the franchise has to make up for is the moment that they took like the love and passion for Friday the 13th out of the hands of Adam Marcus and tried to turn it into something else and have been chasing that tail ever since. Um, that's where the franchise went askew and now it's time to put it back into its place. Well, oh, bless you. Thank you so much. I'm going to mute you, Jerry. You can, um, 
and I will go on an hour long diatribe on why that movie is brilliant. Not, um, but which you can hear in Halloweenies that drops on November 13th. I'm on that show talking Jason goes to hell, but Vincent, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the socials? Uh, youtube.com slash womp stomp films w-o-m-p-s-t-o-m-p-f-i-l-m-s that's where you'll see all of our movies we're on mm-hmm. instagram we're on facebook we're on twitter and we've recently joined uh tiktok and um if you want to follow us anywhere in there uh that'd be great we'll have obviously we'll be posting a ton of stuff now um pretty soon we'll be releasing the cover of the first edition blu-ray mm-hmm. uh, which we've been hiding secret because it has a huge spoiler on the cover okay uh, an oil painting done by bill hunt Ooh. so this is a great piece of artwork that you're getting it will be mm-hmm. the first edition these will be limited these will be hand numbered and signed by myself and Cortland gordon mm-hmm. um we're nearing the, t- the 2500 sale mark i think once we cross that we're really going to be looking at putting the brakes and stopping that edition and starting a new edition mm-hmm. like we do with the previous ones um so we have an Indiegogo open right now. It's called uh, Never Hike in the Snow, The Final Call. Uh, you can check that out. You can pre-order uh, the Never Hike Alone Blu-ray, which will be shipping out this December. You have mm-hmm. about 2,000 people in front of you right now. Uh, but you can get on that list, and we'll get it out as soon as possible. We also have uh, pre-orders uh, for reorders of Never Hike Alone, both second and third edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a few VHSs left. Uh, we have Never Hike Alone masks, uh, posters. And, you know, and some pins too, some really, really nice pins designed by uh, Creative Terror Pins, which are really nice. We really love going through them. Um, so that campaign will probably be open for another month and a half. Mm-hmm. Once we get the final numbers and the Blu-ray disc is ready to be handed off and we know how many we're going to print, we're going to shut down that campaign. Um, we're going to print our discs and then we're going to shut down and we're going to rebuild and be back to Indiegogo this March with Never Hike Again, the next installment of the Never Hike Alone miniseries. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Jerry, where can uh, what are you working on right now, my friend? Let's what do you have coming up? Uh, you announced today something pretty big, right? Yeah, I, I have a few panels in the works. Uh, I've been taking part in the Dreads in Dread Central's ongoing dissecting horror series. Uh, they're all going to be moderated by different people having to do with Dread Central. Uh, my first one was last week, uh, which was like an indie horror panel. Uh, today it was announced that I am moderating a Texas Chainsaw Three reunion. Uh, that is coming up on the 21st of October. We're going to have William Butler, Kate Hodge, and Jeff Burr on that one. Uh, I have a few other panels in the works. Uh, Why book anyone besides William Butler? No one's going to get a word in. Oh, have, have no dude, if, if, you, if you've ever spoken with Jeff Burr, it's, it's, it's crazier. So yeah, really? I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to it. By moderating, I'm looking forward to just sitting there for an mm-hmm. hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, uh, I have a panel coming up with uh, different composers in horror uh like talking with composers from hereditary and different Mm -hmm. other films uh i don't know if that's been announced oops uh yeah i have a lot of them uh some really cool panels coming up uh there's one that i i'll announce right now uh i hope dread central isn't a kiss i am co-moderating a reunion for bit uh, Mm. which is one of my favorite movies of of this year you know i was lucky enough to to watch a cut of it early last year and it's just it stayed with me so I'm going to be co-moderating that with uh, BJ Colangelo. Uh, yeah, tons of stuff. Uh, I'm working on scoring a new short right now. I find out next week if I'm going to get the gig with scoring my first feature mm-hmm. for someone. Uh, a really cool film with distribution already. So, I mean, maybe Walmart will be kind with that with that movie. But uh, other than that, yeah, that's what I have going on. 
Very cool. Well, you can find uh, me over not only on the pod and the pendulum, but also over on the psychoanalysis podcast as part of the Consequence of Sound podcast network. Um, by the time this is up, our latest show will be up where we tackle um, post-traumatic stress disorder as seen through Sydney Prescott's arc in Scream 1 through 3 and the progression of that, treatment for it and such. And then not long after that, we'll also be doing our next comfort horror movie, which I believe is going to be uh, LB from Grumpire and discussing Poltergeist, which is you know, probably one of the top three Steven Spielberg directed movies uh, of all time. Um, thank you, Poltergeist uh, history account. You can come at me now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and we have a lot of stuff going on th- there. Um, over here, like we are coming up on Halloween, like we're less than two weeks away, which is making me kind of sad. And it's kind of realized like how fast this month is going by and just how crazy Jerry and I have been. Um, we are trying to get a couple more things going. Um, number one, we are working, I am working on, and this is kind of not part of the podcast per se, but just, um, you know, I've got a platform where I can amplify it, like a new kind of like Midnight Society ghost story club where we get together at midnight over Zoom, turn out all the lights, have some candles going and uh, share some ghost stories just as a way to kind of interconnect with people. Um, we are trying to plan a couple bonus things for Halloween day. Uh, one would be a drunken script reading. The other thing my daughter said to me, she really wants to do an episode on Hubie Halloween. Yes. And I think that it's going to be a daddy and daughter podcast yes. as a bonus on Halloween. We're going to rewatch it again tomorrow. I loved it, man. I think Dude, I me too. I, I, you know, I would, you know, Hubie Halloween or John Carpenter's Halloween. I could go either way at this point. Let me tell you. Uh, no, we're not that crazy. But I think her and I are going to do like an hour just on that movie. So I know people have really liked when she talks the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So it'll be interesting to see how she does with that. Um, but yeah, and then next week we'll be back with um, John Abrams from Daily Grindhouse to talk about Hellfest, which is, I feel one of the more underrated slashers of the past few years. And I love the Halloween setting for it. So we're really excited to tackle that. Um, We still are trying to line up like one or two guests for our Nightmare on Elm Street bonus show. And I don't want to announce them. I think that sometimes we have a habit of saying so-and-so is coming on and then they don't. You know, it's like that time that we announced like Wes Craven was going to come on or like, oh, it's 2020. So then we're like, well, we'll get Toby Hooper. And then we're like, oh, shit, we can't do that either. So, no, I mean, all morbid joking aside, we, you know, it's sometimes hard to line up guests and make things um, make schedules work. So. Um, but you know, I would really like to have uh, one of the ones that has said they would come on on, but that is it. So support us over at pod and pendulum on Twitter, like rate and review us over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. By the time you listen to this, our latest episode is up and it's kind of a laid back what are you watching right now show along with a miniature breakdown of 976 evil Uh, until then 
thanks to our listeners. Vincent, thank you again. Uh, everybody, wash your hands, wear your masks, socially distance, and have a great week.